0: Let's turn to 2 Peter as we continue to look at what is uh, indeed so glorious about uh, Jesus. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. We've got this call to give glory uh, to Jesus, that Jesus is worthy of glory both now and to the day of eternity. So let's go ahead and stand in the honor of reading uh, this verse, and then we'll continue to look at all the things that are supposed to make. Jesus, so glorious to us. So when we sing songs like we just did uh, about giving glory to the name of Jesus, we know why. What is so glorious about our Christ? Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we've gathered together as, uh, as a church, as people uh, committed to you and committed to one another, recognizing that you have uh, brought us together for this purpose of, of uh, being a holy congregation to you, a body for your glory and not ours. Uh, Father, I pray that as we read these words, God, that you would uh, be working that holiness in us, that you would be holifying us, uh, bringing us closer to yourself growing our righteousness and justice and peace, Father. It's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. All right. So the, the Lord Jesus is worthy of this glory. So we've been looking at what makes Jesus so glorious, uh, what makes, uh, what's so glorious about him being Lord, Uh, and we saw that, you know, that he is the Lord God. Uh, Even that was referenced in the passage that Zachary read, uh, that we would uh, give recognition to the name, right? The Lord your God. Uh, And here, Christ is that Lord. He is uh, the Lord, but he's also our Lord, right? The master, the ruler, the one in control of us, one whose will uh, we follow. Uh, And now we're looking at that he is our savior so what's so glorious about jesus being our savior we know we should say that jesus has saved us that he's our savior but why is that so amazing what is he saving us from what is he doing that should cause us to to not just give him the title of savior but to rejoice when we even hear the word savior to what thoughts, what biblical thoughts should be bubbling up in our heads and and in our hearts. Uh, And so we've been looking, first off, at how Jesus saves us from our sins. Uh, And we've seen that this is a pretty extensive metaphor. You know, and and originally him saving us from our sins was going to be one week. Uh, But then you start to look at all of the symbols attached to it, all of the metaphors that are supposed to be pulling us back to the Old Testament and just the replete number of ways that the Bible talks about how Jesus is saving us from our sins. The different, if we're thinking about a diamond, the different facets to look even at the picture of, so when we say something simple like, Jesus saves me from my sins. Like that's a very deep statement biblically with lots of images and lots of reasons for you and I to be excited and things we could think when we say, Jesus saves me or has saved me from my sins. And so we looked at uh, everything from where John the Baptist proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. So we know Jesus is going to take away that sin. But then we've been looking uh, the last couple weeks at how he does that. How does the Lamb... Take away our sins. And so last week, we saw that his blood washes our sins away. That in saving our salvation, there's a picture of washing, of making us clean, being washed in the blood of that, that perfect sacrifice, but that's not the last picture. This will probably be the last picture before we move into what else he saves us from. Uh, but that, th- not only does he wash away our sins, Jesus saves us from our sins. He washes away our sins. And this is one that, that hopefully you were expecting uh, and has been hinted at in all the others. He, he washes away. He saves us from our sins by dying in our place. Today we're going to talk about, very specifically, the death of Christ. We're going to talk about the cross. Why are all these things happening that none of them is done accidentally? And all of them are teaching us about how Jesus saves us. Every one of them is theologically rich and deep. So today we're going to see that Jesus saves us from our sins by dying in our place. So he's not just this sacrifice that is washing us, whose blood is washing away our sins sort of uh, outside of us jesus is dying in our place now if i we we kind of understand this if i were to even tell you where would we look to see that jesus dies in our place many of us would know passage that we could turn to if i were going to say what is one in the old testament that you would turn to many of you would say isaiah 53 right We would know to turn to Isaiah 53. So if if you want to do that, there we see Isaiah 53 is talking about the work of the Messiah to save the people. Uh, the, The Messiah would be a sacrifice on our behalf. But the sacrifice isn't just going to walk away with our sin. The sacrifice isn't even just going to wash our sins away. The sacrifice there in Isaiah 53 is going to be able to do those things because of what is going to happen to the sacrifice. The sacrifice can take our sins away. That sacrifice of the Messiah can wash our sins away because the sacrifice must die. Sacrifices must die. And all of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, the animal isn't just wounded, right? It doesn't just say, you know, bring the sheep and, you know, punch it really hard uh, and then and then let it walk away it doesn't even say bring the sheep and you know nick it and get a little bit of its blood and that blood from this perfect sheep is because you could think about I mean that could be the metaphor right you bring a perfect sheep and his blood from that perfect sheep washes away your sin God could have said it that way but that's not what happens uh, in the Old Testament the animal dies and in Isaiah 53, That's what is going to happen to the Messiah, to the Christ, to to Jesus. The language there in Isaiah 53 is very much death language. Uh, So if you look, Isaiah 53, beginning in verses uh, 4 through 6, "...surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows." Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Then he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him, will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to what poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the, trans. up to this point, you could be talking about wounding and striking and smiting and smiting and piercing and, and all of these things. well, maybe, maybe death isn't a part of it. But it's very clear, like it, 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 we've, we've had this idea, this crushing is not just momentary. This is to the point of death. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So that's what he's saying. He's gonna, the, the, this sacrifice, this perfect one coming to be pierced for us, the passage we all know that is talking about Christ. It is, it is bathed. In, in Old Testament sacrificial language, right? Piercing, crushing, wounding, the, this sacrifice. I mean, the, we talked a little bit about it. The life of the Jews was a, was a sacrificial life. Now, not in the, like, not in the Romans 12 way uh, that we talk about. Not in like being a living sacrifice. Just because they were nonstop having to make sacrifices. They were nonstop having to, their life revolved around the sacrificial system. And Isaiah is saying, one day, people, one day there will come not just a lamb or a goat or a bull, but a man who will accomplish forever what these sacrifices have been pointing to. It's important for us to recognize that Isaiah 53 is written in the life of a people who, who are, they're reading this with the sound of the bleeding of sheep in their ears, Right? And so what he's saying is we've had all these bulls, we have all these lambs, we had all these goats. One day there's going to come a man who is going to do this. And he's going to do it perfectly. But, but what is Isaiah pointing to? When he says there's going to so one day it's going to be a man who does this, a man who does what? Because we maybe rightfully so in some senses, are not bathed in the sacrificial system of the, of the Old Testament. We're not as familiar with it as maybe we, you know, perhaps should be. Well, what sacri- when he says, he shall make a sacrifice for sin, what sacrifice for sin is Isaiah mentioning? What is he talking about here? Well, Isaiah is actually talking about something uh, that the, the, the Hebrews, the Jews would have read about, would have known about. Um, you could turn back to Leviticus chapter 4. Uh, Leviticus chapter 4 talks about offerings made for sin. And and we're going to read through these and and we're going to see... Okay, so when the people sin, what do we do when we sin, right? This is is laying out, like, this is what my people are supposed to do when they come to my place and they're offering sacrifices. This is what they do. So Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of the bull, and kill the bull before the Lord. Jump down to verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things the uh, uh, Lord's commandments ought not to be done uh, and they realize their guilt, uh, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer up a bull from the herd for a sin offering uh, and bring it in front of the tent of meeting and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. So if the priest uh, sins, if a priest sins, or if the nation sins, then then a bull has to be sacrificed. And, and, but what does that accomplish? Well, he tells us in verse 20, why do they do that? Why does it have to be, uh, why do they bring this bull and kill it for the priest or bring this bull and kill it for the nation? Verse 20 tells us in Leviticus chapter four, thus he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull of this sin offering. So he shall do with this and the priest shall make atonement, For them, and they shall be forgiven. So, the death of the animal representing atonement and forgiveness of sins. Uh, The the same thing actually happens with the priest's own sacrifice. Because remember, it said earlier that the priest brings the bull for his sin. Well, in in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 26, we see that the bull that he offered also does. The same thing. So Leviticus 4:26, and all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the priest offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin and he shall be forgiven. So priest sins, uh, you, uh, you offer a bull. The nation sins, you offer uh, a bull as well. But what if you and I sin? What if it's not in the nation? What if it's not a priest? What if it's just a normal person? Well, Leviticus chapter four tells us in that case, same thing, but instead of a bull, you offer a goat or a lamb. So Leviticus chapter 4 verse 31. So he's sort of moving through the different ways that we might sin and what we do uh, in the sacrificial system. So Leviticus 4:31. Uh, and all its fat he shall remove. And so the fat shall be removed from the peace offerings, and the priest shall burn it uh, on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. So in Leviticus 4 down here, the people have brought a lamb. They've brought a goat. What do they do? They kill it. Why? Killing the lamb or the goat does the same thing. If the person is poor, couldn't afford a goat, couldn't afford a lamb, they bring two turtle doves, or they bring pigeons, and the same thing happens. The the animals are killed. Why? To make atonement and for the forgiveness of sins. So as you're going through Leviticus 4, you see the same thing, right? You see different sins, right? Sin of a priest, sin of a nation. You see different situations, priests, nations, people, poor people, different sacrifices, right? Some have to offer a bull. Some can offer a goat. Some can offer a lamb, some can offer birds. So all these things are different about the sacrifice, but one thing is true for all of them. What happens to all of them? They die. They're killed. And their death brought atonement, it brought forgiveness, but death always happened. It was through that death, the sacrifice has to die now why though why death is God just sort of cosmically morbid why do these animals have to die there's a reason there's a reason that the animal has to die a reason you can't just whip it or or beat it that that there's no point short of death right that you can take this and then God say all right that's enough he doesn't say give it take the sheep and give it 49 lashes There's a reason that these animals have to die, that the animal has to be slain. Why death? Very simply, sin brings death. That's what we're being taught in sacrifices. In these sacrifices is that sin brings death always. It's true from the very beginning. From the very beginning, we have known this. So you look in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, so this is the first things the Lord says to Adam. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So right off the bat, sin is going to bring of all things that, that, God lays out all the consequences, right? And we've just read, God knows how to delineate some consequences. Uh, he doesn't have any trouble coming up with a list of consequences for sin. But what is the one that he lays down here? The day you eat of it, you will surely die. And, 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 and the, first, well, the first recorded sin that we get is the lie that sin doesn't bring death, Right? Because what happens uh, when the, the serpent comes, I think this is so interesting that that's one of the first sins that we see, the first recorded sin is, is, that, is that sin doesn't bring death because we still struggle with that lie. People still struggle with recognizing how is it that, that someone deserves hell for their sin? How is it that someone deserves to die just because they've done bad? That doesn't make any sense. People are still struggling with this lie that that sin is as bad as it really is. That sin deserves and brings with it death. So you see Genesis chapter 3, look at what the serpent says to Eve. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of uh, any tree in the garden? Uh, And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So the first thing the serpent tells her, yeah, you're not going to die. I mean, do it. It's not going to bring, it's not going to bring death. But God was not wrong because in the end, sin came and death came with it. When sin is part of the story, death is always the ending. you ever read a story and you're reading it and going, man, I don't know what the end's going to be. I'm so excited. Uh, And maybe there's going to be a twist. uh, And you're just this anticipation. Look, when sin is in the story, death is always going to be the end outcome. So James chapter one verse fifteen tells us this sort of flow this story this flow chart of, of what this logical progression of what happens he says the desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death sin always brings with it. Death. Sin brings death. In Romans chapter 6, that's why Paul mocks these Christians for, for, for wanting to go back to, you know, quote unquote work for sin, right? You used to be enslaved to sin, and now you're like, hey, I know you I know you used to enslave me, but now I might come back and work for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's mocking them for that idea. Why? Because they know what sin always pays. They've gotten the paycheck. I don't know if you ever, you remember that first paycheck you got and you realize that all of a sudden you were a Republican because you pay way too many taxes. Uh, and I think every, I mean, if you had people register for a political party after their first paycheck, everybody would be Republican because uh, they'd want to cut those taxes because you get so little back. Well, what's funny is we have been, we have seen that. Now the second week, if you get the check again and you're disappointed, it's like, well, you know how much you get paid. You know, it's not, it's not a, it's not, I mean, you know, you work a full week of work. This is what you get paid. It's not a, not a crapshoot, not a roulette table here. You know what it's going to be. And he says the same thing is true of sin. You've been paid by sin. You've seen it as he says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. So why would you go back to work for it? The wages of sin, sin always pays death. Sin does not hold back your check. It pays death and it pays it on time. It pays daily. sin is the the worst employer the worst master because when it pays you lose every time sin you sin it's going to bring with it the consequences and you will lose and you will lose everything sin brings death the wages of sin is death and so sin and death are the story for all of us because all of us have sinned this is the problem right so so sin uh sacrifice have to die, why because sin brings death uh, and so Romans five says this isn't just a problem for a few people this is a problem for everyone romans five twelve therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men why because all sinned so death is a problem for all of us we all sin is going to bring death, and we have all sinned, so death is coming for all of us ephesians two one and two and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked so that's what we deserve that's what's currently true of us without Christ we deserve death and we are dead death is an inevitability and in fact death is a reality already because of sin and so in the sacrifices we are recognizing both the reality I am dead because of my sin and the penalty which is that i deserve death because of my sin so if death is the penalty for sin then only death can be the payment to bring forgiveness of sins and that's been true since the garden it's still true today sin kills and nothing short of death can pay for sin so what can we do we have two options in how to deal with this. Two options in how to deal with your sin. Uh, the first option is you pay the penalty. You pay the eternal price for your sin, the just judgment, the hell is the first option. But I think a lot of us would probably rather skip that exit on the highway, right, Uh so if you don't want to die, if you go, okay, so either, so I owe death eternally, an everlasting death. Either I am going to pay that penalty myself, or what other hope do I have? God says, and, and, and through John the Baptist, this is what began all of this, what does John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb. Right, so that's your two options. Either you're going to bear your sin, what you owe, you're going to pay that penalty, you're going to collect your wages, or the lamb, the lamb of God. And so when you get to the New Testament, the, the the sacrifices are done away with, not because the sacrificial system was broken, but because they're no longer needed, because the perfect sacrifice has come and, and it is christ who now saves us from our sins by dying in our place and so you get these pictures of what the sacrifice do sacrifices must die because sin brings death who can pay the penalty for man's sin not sheep not goats not bulls but a man must die and in christ that's what happens christ's death is for us So Christ comes to be that sacrifice, that second option. Christ's blood is spilled to wash away our sins, but it is also spilled to pay for our sins. Jesus understood this in his own life. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment of debt for many. So Jesus is coming to pay the debt that we owed. He knows that we owed a debt of death and only death could repay it. So Jesus coming to ransom them. How? How is he going to ransom them? He doesn't bring a bag of gold. He doesn't say, look, all the cattle on a thousand hills are the Lord. And so I will bring a thousand cattle and we shall pay for your sins. What does he have to give up? His life. He has to give up his life. And Jesus knows that. In fact, the night before his death at the supper, what does Jesus tell his disciples? Mark chapter 14, verse 24, he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So, so just as the blood of the sacrifices was poured out for the, the sins uh, of, of the one or, or the many in, in Israel, now the perfect sacrifice is going to shed his blood to pay for the sins of the many. Now, how exactly is Jesus going to do that? Well, the same way the Old Testament sacrifices did. He's going to die. And in his death, sin is paid for. Jesus dies in our place. Paul actually labels this one of the foundation truths of the gospel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So how did Christ save us from our sins? He died for our sins. Christ's death was for our sins. Why did Jesus die? He died for our sins. Why did Jesus die? He died for our sins. His death was not unexpected. It was not some turn of events. It was exactly, Paul says, what scripture said would happen. What, what they showed must happen. So Jesus' death is for us romans chapter 4 verses 24 and 25 tell us this paul says it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead jesus our lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification jesus was delivered up for our sins but what's interesting is, is his death is for us, but his death is not because of us. In this way, the Bible is clear that the death of Christ is to take away our sins, not because of any good In terms of what we supply to Jesus' sacrifice, the only thing we supply is the need for it. Right? Jesus doesn't die for you because you're a great person. It's not, like, it's not like there's this level of sinner. And so Jesus dying for these people that are kind of sinners but not as bad as these people. Like Jesus' death is not in anything. He dies for you, but not because of any good in you. So Romans chapter five, six through eight says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus doesn't die for us because we're one of the good ones. Jesus does not die for good people. Jesus doesn't die for any good person. You know why? Because you don't have to die for good people. Good people don't need you to die for them. Jesus' death is what makes people good. But Jesus' death is no accident. It is purposeful. So Isaiah 53 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53:10 10, that, that God is the one who has put him to grief. In Acts chapter two, verse 23, it says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So this idea that the cross is, is some sort of accidental victory is totally contrary to scripture. Jesus is coming to die. He is coming to, According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He is coming very much, it is the will of God for these things to happen. So Jesus' death is purposeful. God is sending his son to die. But not only is Jesus' Jesus' death purposeful, it's also willful. Meaning this Jesus knows what he's coming to do and he does it willingly. He is a willing sacrifice. So John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. So Jesus is clear. His life is not taken from him at any moment. Christ could have avoided death. He could have avoided it. It's not, it's not, it wasn't inevitable. You remember what happens when, when Peter cuts off Malchus's ear? There, what, what does Jesus what does Jesus say to him about his need for backup, right? I got you, Jesus. Uh, and you're like it... You wonder was he aiming for the ear? Was Peter like really good with the sword or really bad? Uh judging a lot. Of, I mean, he we know he doesn't run very fast. Just ask John. Uh so you got all the, you've got all John will tell you multiple times he does not run that fast. Uh but you've got all this. What does Jesus tell Peter after he does that in Matthew chapter 26, verses 53 and 54? He says, "Do you not think I love I, I I love this because he's having to scold Peter again. In the midst of this crucifixion moment, he's having to be like, listen, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? I mean, if Christ wanted to. I mean, we've already seen, right? Like when when he says, uh, I am, right? What does, what happens, what happens to the, to the, to the guards, they come him, They're thrown back in some way. They either step back or they're launched backwards. Either way, they recognize there's something about this dude. Uh, and then he's like, "I could call twelve legions of angels, and even if I did, right, the whole angel of the Lord thing. So, I mean, I could also pull that out of my hat. Who knows? Uh, but uh, what is very clear is at his death, Jesus is not powerless. He is not some sacrifice, sort of... You can imagine the scene around Jerusalem. Remember, we talked about 250,000 sheep being slain in one day for the sins of the people. You can imagine the cries, right? Sheep being taken from their uh, their herds, bulls being led down. The, I mean, all the things that would would just fill it with noise and, and really noise of, I don't want to go there, right? That is probably, I mean... I don't know how well you know animals. Some animals more than those. They don't love the smell of blood, especially the blood of their own kind. And when you're sheep number 249,999 uh, and you're walking into the temple, you're probably like, I feel like bad things have happened here. Uh, you're probably not will- going willingly and skipping like some Looney Tunes sheep uh, in to be sacrificed. That's not the case, though, with Christ. Christ is willingly and purposefully giving up his life. He is not powerful and powerless. In fact, Jesus' death is the most powerful thing a person can do. He's about to do the most powerful thing that has been done by any human being. He is laying down his life. He is dying to save his people from their sins. He is laying down his life in obedience to his father so jesus saves us his death is for us purposefully and willingly he lays down his life to pay the penalty that we owed for our sins so what does that mean for us that's the story that's what happens that's what takes place what does that accomplish for us how does that save us right that's the story that's what he does he goes and does this but how does that bring our salvation that's just a story what does that do what does that accomplish well we're going to see that Christ Christ's death has implications for our past has implications for our present even our future in in terms of our past and what we've done in Christ's death and because of Christ's death our debt is now gone what does his what does his death accomplish our debt that debt that we owed is gone Christ's death on the cross pays the penalty of death that we owed Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 14 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh So remember death was both a reality and the penalty You who were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross. So we were dead, we, we, as we've seen, God made us alive. How? By forgiving us all our trespasses. But how does God forgive us of our trespasses? Can he just sort of, like, just, just, like, fairy-dusted away? Can he just sort of declare sin not a thing? How does he forgive us our trespasses? Because we know God can't do that because he is a just judge. God cannot just let the guilty go unpunished. He says that multiple times. In fact, there will not be one sin in the entirety of the universe that will not be fully and finally paid for. Not one. So, how is it that you and I are forgiven? How is it if one sin, if we'd committed one sin, it would, it would be, we would owe an eternity of punishment of death. How can all of our sins be forgiven? He says by canceling verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. And, And here we see again, this debt had legal demands, right? God is a just judge here. But canceling doesn't mean that God is just choosing to ignore it. This isn't like just canceling Netflix. You just go and sort of hit unsubscribe from sin here. Again, because if God did that, he would be unjust. He would have created a world where sin is running rampant and he is doing nothing about it. The word there for cancel there doesn't mean, though, to ignore it doesn't mean just to ignore something. In fact, it means to wipe away, to blot out. It can even be translated to obliterate, which I think would be a really cool translation uh, by, you know, the, by obliterating the record of death. I mean, that's just, that's just really, that's, some, that's deep King James level stuff. Uh, in fact, this word is used to refer to what, uh, so when we read about the new heavens and the new earth and that God will wipe away every tear from our eye, that's the word there. Uh, he will get rid of it. He will, you know, cancel every tear from my eye. That, does, that doesn't work as a translation. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, he is wiping them away. They are gone, right? He is doing something to get rid of them. It's the word used when he describes that our sins are being blotted out. I will blot your sins out. Same word or, or the word where he says that he will blot out someone's name from the book of life in Revelation. Same word, cancel, blot out, remove, wipe away, obliterate, whatever. But no matter what the, the 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 way it's translated, the the picture behind the word is clear. Whatever it is, is gone. And in this case, it means that our debt, what we owed, that the penalty of death is gone. That it's it's destroyed. It's taken care of. It's wiped away. But again, this this is this is not some New Testament twist. This is not the mean God. Of the Old Testament deciding to all of a sudden get nice. Which is, I think how this is often pictured. Like God had been so mean and judging everybody all the time. Then he got to the New Testament and was like, let's try something different. Uh, I'll be nice now. Uh, and no more like obliterating people for sin. No more earth opening up and swallowing whole peoples. Like I've, I've learned my ways. But that's not the case. In fact, this idea of your sin being blotted out is very rich Old Testament idea. So, uh, in fact, Psalm 51, right? You have the sin of of David here, a passage that we all know. Uh, He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Now, David is not going to go or maybe in the future do that, because I know that's not what you do right now. That's not your thing. Like, this is what God has always done for his people. It, 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 in fact, this is part of when God is saying and telling the people who he is. And even, that's right. Even in the Old Testament, when he's telling the people, this is who I am as your God. He is the God who blots out sins and transgressions. That's who He is. So look at Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. This is all, I mean, again, all the way back, Old Testament, this, these pictures are there. Isaiah 44:22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. So you can picture, you know what it's like on those cloudy days when the sun comes or the mist is there and the sun comes out and the clouds are all of a sudden gone. The mist is gone. He says, return for me for I have redeemed you. So, so here that idea in Colossians that is pointing back to what God already said he would do uh, and does uh, in, in Isaiah and in Psalms. The picture is, is, is more uh, if, you're, if you're trying to get a picture, it's like a statement of debt, a, a record of debt that this person owes this much, that, that these are their, their wages, and God wipes that debt away. I remember, I remember this happened one time when we, I just had my back surgery, uh, and I just had, we just had a baby, because those are two things you want to do at once, uh, and uh, we owed a lot of money. Uh, just in case neither one of those is, is cheap uh, but the back surgery is a little bit more expensive uh, so we owed a lot of money to St. John's and so I called St. John's and we talked about it uh, and I was like look I can be your indentured servant for a while, and then when the year of Jubilee comes, you have to let me go. Uh, or I can pay you little by little. Uh, and they said, you know what? We're going to cover the cost. We'll pay your debt, and it'll be gone. And then the next time, that bill came in, and it said, you know, debt paid. And that was really nice. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the picture that's going on here. Your life had a, a record of what you owed. And, and imagine if you was just one sin, you would owe a record of eternity in hell. Uh, eternal judgment for sinning against such a great and glorious God. So we have that record uh, and God wipes that debt away. Well, how does he do that? What does Colossians say he does? Colossians says he nails it to the cross. I think it's interesting because it's not, we often think think of Jesus nailed to the cross. but It's not just Jesus that is nailed to the cross. It's not just our sins nailed to the cross. It is the record of what we owed. He's not just killing, Christ doesn't just die, and our sins aren't just killed. What we owed is killed, is nailed to the cross. That, that future bill that is ready to come due, in fact, in many ways, it's already coming due that would have hovered over every move that we made in, in our lives. That record, that threat is no more. It's gone, it's finished. It is, it is obliterated. It is wiped away. It is canceled, paid at the cross. That's how God can cancel our Debt, because at the cross, the debt isn't just forgiven, it is paid. Now, we have two options. Either I can speed through the rest of the things that God does for us in our salvation on the cross, or we can come back and pick up there next week uh, and see what else uh, Christ's death on the cross accomplishes for our uh, sin, what Christ does to bring us forgiveness of sins. And I think that would be the more wise decision uh, because we have each other every week, every day. Uh, so let's go ahead and take a time to pray right now to remember what Christ has done, the purposeful and willful act of God to send a sacrifice on our behalf for our sins uh, and what that is doing to us, that your record is gone and we're going to see next week what else comes with that as well so let's just take a moment with your head bowed uh one just thank the lord that you are not the sacrifice thank the lord that you are not the one who has to pay the debt that you owed and and think about how many times you owed the debt of death. And just, just one sin, just, just, right? just eating the tree one time and you will die. And I think how many times you have eaten of the tree of this world, even when you knew better. Right? Those sins that talked about, sins of, well, that were done unintentionally, right? Offer a bull, offer a goat. But how many times have we sinned as, as you could translate in the Old Testament, have you sinned with a high hand? Have you sinned pridefully, knowing you shouldn't do it and you do it anyway? And yet in Christ, there's payment for your sin. I mean, that we're not here just mourning uncontrollably. If you want to see the gravity of what Christ has done, just think about the normalcy of our life here as saved. I mean, that the sword of the Lord is not just constantly hanging over us. There's not just fearful expectation of judgment. Why? Because... Because our sins have been forgiven. Our debt has been paid. A sacrifice has to die and one did. A perfect sacrifice died on your behalf. Not because you deserved it. And yet here you sit reaping all the benefits of it. I mean, what motivation do we need to come and worship the Lord and sing his praises, glorify him? And and what what motivation, more motivation do we need to, to live for him? I mean, that's what, that's what Paul's going to get at in Romans 12 when he says that we are then to present our bodies as living sacrifices. We're supposed to so rejoice that we don't have to die, that we die. That we lay down our lives just like Christ did, but this time not in penalty for sin, but rejoicing in our Savior. What a great God, what a great salvation. And and the truth is, we sometimes take it for granted. Father, we come and we confess, God, that even as we talk about the great things done for us by Christ, as we try to understand why is Jesus dying, how does he save us from our sins, and why does he have to die on the cross? That, Father, as you lay out these things for us, we will never truly understand the great depths of our sin. But, Father, we will only begin to grasp the surface of what it means to sin against the holy God. But, Father, I pray that we would grasp deeper and deeper at that surface because, Father, that will make our salvation all the more glorious, all the more amazing. That you have saved people like us. That we would realize father. The great debt that we owed. So that we would see nailed to the cross. Not some minor post-it note in history. But a giant scroll. Of all our sins and iniquities. Of all that we owed. Of an eternity. Of just judgment for our sins. and yet in Christ you are able to be both just and justifier paying our debt canceling it wiping it away so that nothing obliterating it so that nothing remains and father i pray that we will not let the accuser hold guilt over us where no guilt remains our debt has been paid our, our hope is not in us. And so when Satan tries to, when Satan tries to get us down because of, of how not good we are, we recognize that my hope is not me. My hope is Christ. And I cling to him. I, I run to the rock who is greater than I. That shield that will always prove true. So, Father, help us today to begin to grasp what it means that Jesus died for our sins. That he didn't just die for our sins. He died in our place. Because death for sin was going to happen. The question is just who would die. And we are here to rejoice that our Savior has stood in our place that he has borne our iniquities to the point of death and brought for us atonement, forgiveness, and life. We thank you, Father. And it is in the name of our Christ that we pray and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Amen.